Welcome to the Beer Driven Devs podcast, where your hosts, Matt Goldman and Liam Elliott, share their experiences and passion for technology, software, and of course, beer. So be sure to grab yourselves a cold one and join them for this week's chat. Good evening, Liam. How are you doing today? Oh, it's pretty hot, Matt. It's, um, <laughs> it's hot and stuffy today. Otherwise, doing all right. Mate, it's sweltering here. Have you got aircon? We do, but my office, I've only got a fan. Same. I've got my ceiling fan on and my Dyson Tower fan, and it is still just sweltering here. Just this heat. So, you had a big weekend? Yeah, we had the uh, the Maui Hack Day on Saturday, which was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Why don't you tell me about your weekend first? Well, actually, last week I kicked off my training program. That means the UTA run, UTA 100's about 15 weeks away now. One week down, basically that's what my weekend was all about. 24K on Saturday before it got too hot. Another 10 last night sometime. How many kilometres a week are you running at the moment to train for that? So week one was a 70K week over five different runs. This week's 74. Well, hats off to you, mate. I had my dedication. Oh, look, I know you've been there. You know what's involved. So that's what's consuming me for the next 16 weeks or so. But what's consuming you for the next two weeks? Well, not this coming week, but the week after is NDC Sydney, which, as you know, is one of the biggest developer events of the year in the calendar for us here in Sydney. So I'm pretty excited about that. I've got a few things going on there. I've actually got a talk that I'm delivering and I've got a two-day hands-on workshop that I'm teaching as well. Mm, how's that coming on? Pretty good, actually. I'm pretty happy with So the talk is a talk I've given before. I, I've updated it and refined it a bit. It needs a bit more work, so I'll polish it off this week. And, and actually, the workshop, I'm still polishing off this week as well. There's a few more sort of finishing touches, refinements. But I'm pretty happy with how it's turning out. Like the, the, the workshop, as you know, well, as you may or may not have heard, I have actually written a book on this topic as well. <laughs> no, no, I haven't heard. Honestly, I don't mention it often. You know, I kind of keep it under my hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the book is a lot more, I mean, it's self-paced, obviously, because it's a book. So while it's it's practical and it's hands-on, it does kind of teach some of the theory as well and explain what you're doing and why you're doing. The workshop is the other way around. It's, it's hands-on first. Um, so it, it's really it's really intense. It's fast-paced. It's hands-on. You spend two days just coding and coding and coding, and you have an app at the end of it. The people that are coming along and attending don't actually know this yet because I didn't advertise it, but I'm going to give all the attendees a free copy of the book, digital copy. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think the book and the workshop will go really well hand in hand together. Mm. I think they'll complement each other really well. So I think the people that are coming along are going to get a lot out of that. And as I said, you know, the two different learning styles and teaching styles, I think, will, will play off each other really well. Yeah, awesome. Hopefully, if anyone's been tossing up whether or not they want to do your workshop, maybe a free book in there might help sway them to come along. Well, knowing that you're preparing for NDC, how about we use this opportunity for you to teach me something? I would love to. And by something, I'm guessing you mean you want to learn a bit more about .NET MAUI. Oh, look, you know, I was hoping you'd teach me how to make an app in Swift, but you know, if we have to, let's let's work with MAUI. Well, look, I can teach you how to make an app in Swift, but that's only going to work. Well, for now, it's only going to work in two places. And that's iOS and macOS. For now, I'm sure someone will come along and cross-platform it. Actually, I'm fairly sure that there's an effort underway to do that already. I don't know if you know, but Kotlin, which is the equivalent on Android now. Mm -hmm. So it used to be Java, of course. And then Sun Microsystems was sold to Oracle. And Sun Microsystems were the people that had the the rights to Java. And of course, Sun was a a very different organization to Oracle. I mean, I I don't know if you remember the news of when this happened, but it was mind-blowing. There could not be companies at two different ends of the big tech company spectrum, philosophically. 
I don't think Oracle were interested in anything that Sun owned or did apart from Java because they knew that Java was on billions of devices all around the world. Mm-hmm. Pretty much most dumb phones or feature phones, as we call them, the phones that were around before smartphones, generation of phones before, you know, iPhone, the first iPhone came along, were either running Symbian mm-hmm. or Windows CE yep. or Java. Well, actually, that's not true because there was, there was, of course, there was BlackBerry as well. Like, yeah. So I was going to say, Nokia was Symbian, yeah. and you had Windows. Yeah, so which ones were using Java? Basically, nearly everything else was using some form of Java. Yeah, okay. Not all, but nearly all. You know, embedded devices, you know, every, you know everything. Of course, Windows, Mac, Linux, desktop, servers, everything. Java was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And yeah. I, think, I think Oracle thought, well, you know, if we buy that and we own that IP, there's a massive scope here to start changing the licensing to make it no longer free for commercial use, or I don't know exactly what their plan was. Now, I think that plan mostly didn't succeed. And I think the one place where it got close was Android, because Android was based on Java and, and, you know, Java was used for creating apps for Android. And you yep. can still create apps for Android with Java, but Google then switched to Kotlin for creating these apps. Now, Kotlin actually, going on a tangent here, Kotlin, there is an effort underway to, to make that cross-platform as well. But you mentioned Swift earlier. So yep. at the time, Swift wasn't around yet. Swift wasn't at the time used for creating apps for iPhones. It was Objective-C. Mm-hmm. Objective-C had been around for you know, a long time and was the de facto language for creating apps for Mac as well. So you had Objective-C and you had Java. Uh, and if you wanted to write an app for the iPhone and for Android, you had to write two apps. Nowadays, you don't have to do that. The landscape of cross-platform development frameworks and packages is many. There are many. So there is .NET MAUI, which we have mentioned and we're going to talk more about. Mm-hmm. There's Flutter. So Flutter was created by Google and their cross-platform mobile apps are created in Flutter and they open-sourced it and other people use it as well. There's React Native. Yep. React Native was created by Facebook. It was Facebook at the time. And same thing, they used it to build their cross-platform apps, well, Facebook initially, and then they open-sourced it, and that's quite popular as well. There are other frameworks. There are a lot of options for taking a, a single-page application JavaScript web app and making it installable, not just as a PWA, progressive web app, but as a, you know, wrapped in a, a little web renderer and, and, you know, installable as a binary. Mm. Now, a few of them work that way where you, you take a web app and you execute it, you, you, a single-page client-side web app, and you run it locally on the device, but wrapped in a, a little web view. But .NET MAUI doesn't do that. Now, Flutter and React Native also don't do that. So .NET MAUI, Flutter, and React Native are in this category where they actually create binary executable apps, notwithstanding a bit of JIT, just-in-time compilation, for the target platforms. Now, the history of .NET MAUI was back in, what was it, 2000, when the first version of .NET was announced in two, maybe 2001 when it came out. So .NET Framework was, we were speaking before about Java. Now Java had this idea that they called WARA, write once, run anywhere. Yep. That was the idea of Java because Java wasn't just a language, it was also a runtime. And that runtime was a virtual machine. Now before you had Java, if people wanted to write software, they wrote that software against APIs provided by an operating system. So if you wanted to write software for Windows, you would use the uh, the Windows API. If you wanted to write software for Linux, you would have to write software using the POSIX API. And if you wanted to write software for Mac OS, you of course had to use the, uh, I think it was still System 7 back then, maybe even System 9 operating system APIs. Hmm. Java said, don't worry about that. We'll handle the layer between your code and the operating system. You just write your code against the APIs that we provide and we'll take care of running your code 
on whatever platform you want to run it on. And that was the JVM, right? The Java Virtual Machine. That's right. That Java runtime was the Java Virtual Machine. So you had the language and you had the runtime. The runtime was the Java Virtual Machine. And that's the whole point. It was a virtual machine uh, because, you know, the physical machine could be any physical machine. The operating system could be any operating system. Java would virtualize the APIs and say, write code against this. And it was incredibly successful. Java was was everywhere. Java really ruled the world. And, you know, one of the reasons for that was that the people that made it, Sun Microsystems, were, uh, you know, a very big tech company. But they were a company run by engineers with a passion for technology. So it, everything that they did was really for the love of it as a whole company, and which is, again, is that Oracle have had a reputation for a long time as a very cutthroat business and, and kind of the antithesis of that. So it, it was a very surprise sale, as I said. Anyway, Microsoft really liked this idea. That was 1996, by the way, I'm fairly sure, was, was when the first version of Java came out, 1996. Now, Microsoft liked this idea and they sort of thought, well, we want to do the same thing, right? So they released .NET Framework. Now, .NET Framework was like Java in some ways and unlike Java in others. In the ways that it was like Java was, first of all, it introduced its own language, and that was C Sharp. C Sharp at the time was very much like Java. Java and C Sharp tend to diverge and converge as time goes on. It almost, you know, like a little DNA double helix. You know, they sort of drift apart and drift back together, and, you know, they that's kind of how they evolve these days. So it was like Java in that respect. It was also like Java in the sense that it was, you know, they didn't necessarily call it a virtual machine, but it, it was a runtime, right? So the code that you wrote for .NET, you wrote using the .NET base class library. So that was effectively the runtime APIs that you were given, and you didn't have to worry about where it was running. You didn't get Mac OS and Linux, but you did get Windows, ME, XP, Server, NT4, what have you. I don't think Windows 3.11 was still... No, but I think an important, well, I don't know if it's important, but I think one distinction there is, like you said, Microsoft didn't call it the virtual machine. They had the runtime, the CLR, which is the common language runtime. Now, the important distinction there is the common language, which meant you didn't just have C Sharp, right? You could also use VB. Yeah, that's right. So VB Visual Basic had been around for a few years before .NET. And then there was the version that came out when .NET came around, which was VB.NET. And of course, the difference was what it compiled to. So Visual Basic previously would compile against Windows APIs and subsequently would compile against the .NET CLR. Mm. And there were other languages as well at the time. So there was J Sharp. Microsoft tried to bring Java into .NET as well and didn't for various technical and some non-technical reasons. These days, VB.NET is still around and we have F Sharp and we have C Sharp. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Technically, theoretically, anyone can create a language that uses the .NET CLR and the .NET runtime because it's open source. And the compiler now is open source as well. It is now. It wasn't back then, but it is now. But it is now. There's a guy called Frank Kruger. I don't know if you know who he is, but he likes to write his own compilers in his own languages. And I'll quote him here because this is not a claim that I make, but he says, writing compilers is easy. <laughs> Look, one of the best YouTube series I've seen, Imo Landworth from Microsoft, he's got a YouTube series. We'll put a link to it where it's basically about writing your own compiler. So he's got a, an awesome series where you go from start to finish of writing a compiler. With your own language. Yeah. So with that said, nowadays, it's easy for anyone to write a .NET language. I say easy. It's technically easy. And you know what? Before we publish this, and we'll check and we'll stick some links in the show notes. I bet if we did a, a little bit of a quick search on GitHub, we'd find a whole bunch of languages compiling against .NET. Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't know if it's against .NET, but you know, Dylan Beatty's got Rockstar. That's the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. Anyway, hold that thought, right? Because 
that's now, right? And if we go back to .NET Framework version 1.0, it wasn't open source. It offered some things that Java offered. And as I said, one of those was the, the CLR, like you said, or the runtime. And the other was a unique language. So there were other languages as well. But at the time, C Sharp was the one that was introduced for that language. But it was different from Java in some other ways, right? And one of those ways was that while it could run on different versions of Windows, it only ran on Windows. Mm. And one of the other ways was that it didn't have its own UI. It did get its own UI through WPF. That's the Windows Presentation Foundation. But again, it's Windows only, right? Correct. The compiler wasn't open source, but Microsoft wanted this to be... The, the, the reason that they named everything .NET was they wanted everything to be based on open internet standards. Now, their reason for that may have been different to the reason that they choose that kind of approach these days. And I think, obviously, they wanted to control the web. They were a bit late to the party with taking the internet seriously enough. I guess, mm. and they wanted to kind of step in and, and control the internet. And that's why it was all open standards. So while everything was closed source and proprietary, the quote unquote standard itself was open. So a couple of guys came along and what they did was they looked at the standard and they wrote their own compiler and runtime for it, for Linux. And this was called Mono. Mm. So at this point, .NET became open source and cross-platform, but not officially, right? Not via Microsoft. So Mono wasn't binary compatible with .NET framework. And in fact, it wasn't even code compatible with your C-sharp applications. Because while we're talking about a runtime abstracted from the operating system, there was still a lot of Windows-specific stuff in there. Yep. There's obviously quirks of the way that things run, even when they're compiled. We, we even see that now. But essentially, you had, you had a compiler that you could take .NET C-sharp code, and you had a runtime, and you could run it on Linux. This was pretty cool, right? This was a big, pretty big deal. And then... Some other cool stuff happened. Getting back to WPF, so WPF was a, uh, a UI framework that Microsoft introduced to support .NET. Now, I know that you have a fair bit of experience with WPF, and I know that it's kind of not considered cool these days, but I think WPF is fantastic. Oh, it, it's no such an incredibly good UI framework. Yeah, look, I loved working in WPF. Some of the best projects in my career were in WPF, and I absolutely love it. And the patterns that we used back then are still relevant now. 100%. And we'll get back to that, actually. You mentioned about some of the best projects in your career. In one of an earlier episodes, you mentioned about something that you found out years later that they were still working on, and that was that thing you built. You didn't mention at the time, but I'm pretty sure that what you were talking about was a WPF project. 100% it was a WPF project. And as circumstances would have it, as part of my current consulting work, I've actually had the opportunity to have a look at that application now. I haven't looked at the code base yet, but the actual application itself looks exactly the same as it did 12 years ago or so. That's amazing, isn't it? Still, it's mission critical. It's a testament to the technology, I think. I agree. You would never say this or even probably think it, but it's a testament to your work as well, mate. Yes, but I won't say me. There were more senior people on our team at the time that put in some amazing practices for our team. Again, I took a lot of learnings from that project. Over the years, as the team disbands and new people come along, legacy projects, maintenance happens, things get bastardized. Absolutely. I don't think it's exactly as it was back then, but it's still running and it's still working. The application doesn't look too dated. It doesn't look as, it's not your old Windows Battleship Gray that is common for WinForms. And, you know, I'm pretty sure if it was a WinForms application, it wouldn't be running still. Yeah, it's really positive to see that kind of impact against my career. That's awesome. All right, so I want to get back to WPF for a moment. So WPF, developers loved it. And Microsoft thought to themselves, wouldn't it be cool if this could run on the web? So they created a browser plugin. <laughs> you know where this is going. 
Back when plugins were fashionable. Yeah. You know, back at this point in time, which was basically the 2000s, browser plugins were all the rage. I mean, you had HTML, you had JavaScript, and you had CSS. They weren't unsophisticated, but they couldn't get near to what you could do with desktop. Absolutely. So you had things like Flash, Adobe Flash, and mm -hmm. later Adobe Air. You must remember like Dreamweaver and all that sort of stuff. Browser plugins were all the rage because they were a way of creating more sophisticated applications on the web. In fact, you know, Java, right? So there was a way, there was a Java plugin for running, you know, what was called applets, Java apps in the browser. Yeah. It was just the way things were done. So Microsoft created something called Silverlight and Silverlight was a browser plugin that was uh, just a WPF renderer for the web. And it was, it was bloody fantastic. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I didn't deal too much with Silverlight, but I do know it was a lot more limited because you weren't running natively on the desktop, right? But I do recall the project that we were just talking about, a competing company was building a competing product to ours. It's an internal product, but it, they were building it internally for them. We were building our one. We were on WPF, so running it all on the desktop. They went down the path of Silverlight. They didn't see the light of day. That product, they ended up having to pull the pin after spending millions of dollars on it. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was a project management thing, but I do still remember these days, like the technology was not as complete as WPF was. No, of course not. You know, WPF, you take the UI out of it. You've still got the whole .NET base class library. You've still got all of the Windows APIs that were available in .NET. I mean, you had to architect your applications differently because it was just a web UI renderer. I thought it was pretty good. Anyway. A bunch of other people thought it was pretty good as well. So they took Mono and created an open source implementation of Silverlight and it was called Moonlight. And that was pretty cool as well. And I saw some pretty cool stuff done with that, actually. I won't go into too many details, but there was one project that I saw. As you know, I worked in a hospital for a long time. And one of the products that we brought into the hospital uh, was effectively like a patch that would be stuck to a patient's chest. When you see a patient hooked up to machines in ICU or wherever else, and you've got those ops coming through, this was effectively a similar thing, but for patients on the ward. And it would all just work through this one patch. So you didn't need all that equipment. It worked wirelessly. You didn't need the whole, um, it's called a pendant, that big arm that hangs from the ceiling and that has all those monitors and sensors and attachments and, and you know, the oxygen lines and all that sort of stuff. You didn't need any of that. This is just a patch that stuck to the patient and it would work wirelessly. And the UI that would show the OBS and the, the vitals for the different patients was uh, Silverlight. And one enterprising group of uh, resellers tried to replicate this in Moonlight so that you could just run it on a little Raspberry Pi and just you know have a little Raspberry Pi on the nurse station. So I, I, I don't know whether that ever succeeded or not, but as we know, and as you mentioned, as you alluded to, I should say, browser plugins aren't really a thing anymore. And the reason they're not really a thing anymore is because of iPhone, which we mentioned earlier. So uh, back in 2007, when the first iPhone launched, a significant number of very popular websites ran on browser plugins, including actually YouTube. So YouTube was flash based at the time. So iPhone came along and, you know, a bunch of people were complaining saying, you know, come on Apple, you've got to support browser plugins. Uh, you know, we want to use our favorite websites. And they said, no. Then the next iPhone came along and everyone thought they would have browser plugins and Apple said no. And Apple just stuck to their guns. And you would think that logic would dictate that people would cease buying the iPhones if they couldn't access the, the websites they wanted to on it. But of course they didn't, right? You know, they continued to buy iPhones because another thing to remember at the time was it wasn't people's primary computing device. It was a companion device. 
Yes, but I think you'll also find, I hypothesize here, right, Apple's decision not to support plugins was also to encourage the app downloads. Yeah, you'd be correct. Right? The less rich the web experience is, the more you have to download apps. Yes. But anyway, look, they stuck to their guns and all of these websites and, and tools and, and products and whatever else, they had to just support mobile without plugins. And thus HTML5, what we now call HTML5 was born, plugins mm -hmm. are no more. And really, that's what it came down to. And, and, you know, a lot of people like to talk about Silverlight and say, oh, you know, Microsoft killed it. Microsoft didn't kill Silverlight. Apple killed Silverlight. Microsoft didn't retire Silverlight because it wasn't a good product. It was a fantastic product. It didn't survive the cull of browser plugins, the great browser plugin cull of 2007 to 2009. And that's just what happened to all browser plugins. Funnily enough, as an aside, I think I saw something like within the last couple of weeks where someone showed a demo of a Silverlight app running in browser without any plugins. Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. We've got WebAssembly now, so you can literally run anything in a browser. Yeah. And WebAssembly is fully supported on every mobile browser. So WebAssembly effectively is another kind of virtual machine, and you can you can compile anything to it and run it. So, yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. Anyway, back on topic. But, yeah, so back on topic. So we have Moonlight. The next thing that came along was something called MonoTouch. MonoTouch was a port of mono for the iPhone. So you could write your C-sharp.net code or your mono-compatible C-sharp code, and you could compile it to a version of mono that would run on the iPhone. Shortly after that came MonoDroid, same thing, but for Android. Now, these evolved over a short space of time to Xamarin.iOS and Xamarin.Android. So MonoTouch became Xamarin iOS and MonoDroid became Xamarin.Android. So Xamarin.iOS and Xamarin.Android were different from MonoTouch and MonoDroid in one important respect, and that's that they weren't just a compiler for and runtime for C Sharp but, or .NET, but they were also a full abstraction of the platform APIs. And if you wanted to create an app for iOS, you would still have to know the iOS APIs. You would still have to know everything about UIKit and how to render a button on screen and how to interact with uh, all the various different sensors and everything else that the platform gave you the iOS way, but you could write all that in C Sharp and have it compiled down to, to native code. Same thing with Android, right? So you didn't have to use Java, but you did have to know all the APIs, right? And you did have to know how to create Android apps the Android way, but you could do them in C Sharp. So you're still not writing once, running everywhere? No, although if you are writing a cross-platform app, you could certainly abstract out part of it to a class library and share all of your business logic between them. So let's say you've got a, an app for, you know, let's say you're a social media network and you've got a web app and you've got an API that your web app interacts with. At the time, you may not have because, you know, server-side rendering was probably still a big thing. Single-page applications weren't a big thing. But you may have had a REST API and you could have written some logic for interacting with that API and authentication and everything and had that in a shared class library and have your Android app and your iOS app both consume those. Uh, you know, there's there's different bits of logic. You mentioned earlier patterns that emerged from WPF that we still use today. One of those is MVVM. One thing you could have done, for example, is have all your view models shared, sure. and just and then you just have to write the custom views per platform. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, eventually, another product came along, which was called Xamarin Forms. And Xamarin Forms was another layer across the top of those two platform frameworks, which was a UI. And it was kind of based a little bit on WPF. What I mean by that is actually not at all based on WPF. 
but it <laughs> used XAML as the markup language for the UI. And XAML was invented for WPF, as was the MVVM pattern. And it kind of encouraged MVVM and XAML and that kind of stuff. It's a different flavor of XAML, but it's still XAML. I mean, you know, XAML is just XML, right? So, you know, saying a different flavor of XAML, yeah. you know, it's just, it's a different, you know, slightly different tag names. So Xamarin Forms came along and with Xamarin Forms, you could now theoretically literally write one app that would run on both platforms. Now in practice, you would still have to do a fair bit of customization per platform. There were things that you just couldn't abstract across both. And they're still up to this day. You know, it, it depends what you want to do and, and how far you want to go, but you still have to do some custom platform logic. Like, like for example, if you want to use various sensors or the camera or location and that sort of stuff, you know, the way that you request those is, is you have to do in a platform specific way, but either way, they introduced Xamarin Forms and Xamarin Forms didn't let you now just share your business logic and your view models. You could now share your views as well. So you could write this on anywhere. It had a bit of a bumpy start. It took a few versions to get to a point where I think it was really reasonable to say you can use this. But I would say that that version was 3.5. I found the versions of Xamarin Forms prior to 3.5 were not stable. Xamarin.iOS, fantastic. Xamarin.Android, fantastic. Xamarin Forms prior to 3.5, not really usable. 3.5 comes along, usable. Xamarin Forms 4 came along and it was just bloody fantastic. Really, really good. Yep. Xamarin 5, even better. And I think Xamarin 5 was, was the best version of Xamarin we ever got. It was really stable, really mature, just fantastic. And that was the last ever version. So where, where in this timeline then does Microsoft purchase Xamarin? That's a really good question. In this timeline, in fact, there's another really important thing that happened uh, along this timeline. And these two things converged at this point. Back in this timeline, something else happened, and that was .NET Core. Mm -hmm. So you had .NET Framework up until version... Well, 4.8 we have now, which was which again is the last ever version. So you had .NET Framework versions 1.x, 2.x, 3.x, and then you got to 4.x, and obviously 4.x is going on forever. Or well, 4.8, I think, is the last the last version we're going to get now. So after you know 4.x of .NET Framework, Microsoft basically abandoned .NET Framework in favor of .NET Core, and the difference between .NET Framework and .NET Core was that .NET Core could run anywhere. So it was it was much more like Java in that it was a completely portable runtime. .NET Core ran on Mac OS, Windows, and Linux. And this was huge for cloud, for Microsoft, because it meant that people could run Linux compute in the cloud to run their .NET, which mm. saves a lot of money. So again, .NET Core, the first version, was also a bit of a bumpy ride. .NET Core 2 came along, and that was a bit better. And I think .NET Core 2.1, once we got to 2.1, we hit the version that I think people were very comfortable saying we can use this in production. Well, that's when you started to get a bit more parity with .NET 4.5, I think it was, from memory. So I remember Core 1 was, there was no parity and it was missing a lot of that core functionality that everyone relied on from .NET 4.5 and earlier. Yeah, so then we got .NET Core 3 and 3.x. And then around 2016, uh, sorry, the first version of .NET Core, I think, was 2016. And that was when they purchased Xamarin. So Microsoft purchased Xamarin in 2015. Then we get to 2018 and 19, and Microsoft now introduced their 1.NET strategy. Because people were confused. There's a really funny video about this, actually, which is the interview with the senior .NET developer. It's part of a series. I don't know if you've seen it. So Microsoft announced their, their one .NET strategy. Yeah? And, and what that meant was it was now truly write once, run anywhere, cross-platform, including UI. So they had, at this point, Mono, Xamarin, which they'd bought, 
Unity for running dot, you know, games built in C Sharp across platform, yeah. .NET Core. But that was going to go away, and this was all going to converge with .NET 5, right? So no more core, no more framework. It's just .NET. So we got .NET 5. Yeah. What was this, 2019 or 20? I, I think it was 2020. Either way, end of 19, start of 20, somewhere around there, we, got, we get .NET 5. So no more framework, no more core. And Microsoft's vision was to streamline UI into this. So what they said was, you know, right now we've got .NET 5, we've got Unity, we've got um, you know, .NET for IoT, uh, all the other things that, that, that they were supporting and saying, you know, run .NET anywhere. So cloud, in your pocket, on your fridge, wherever. And then we got .NET 6. And what they said with .NET 6 was that they were going to release a brand new cross-platform UI for mobile and desktop called MAUI, which stands for multi-platform app UI, .NET MAUI. And that's part of now the .NET vision and part of that whole stack. That was released, the first version of that was released with .NET 6. .NET 6 came out in 2022. So .NET 5 was, would have been 21 even. So Xamarin Forms has gone away. It's been replaced with, with .NET MAUI. Now .NET MAUI is based on Xamarin Forms in a big way. In fact, the underlying platform technologies are evolved straight from, it's now called .NET for iOS and .NET for Android, but they're effectively Xamarin.Android and Xamarin.iOS. The, the bit that's been rebuilt is the Xamarin Forms part, which is now .NET MAUI. So .NET MAUI is the uh, same concept. You write your UI once, you write all your code once using XAML or C Sharp. You can, you can use C Sharp to write your UI as well. Mm -hmm. It will compile down to Windows, Mac OS, Linux. Uh, sorry, it doesn't support Linux. It's, it will run for Windows, Mac OS, Android, or iOS just with a single code base. And that's where we are today. So this, this came out originally with .NET 6. It was a bit bumpy. It was very bumpy, actually, .NET 6. But, you know, same thing with .NET Core, you know, .NET Core 1 was, you know, like you said, it, it didn't have parity, it was buggy, but, you know, a couple of versions later we got there and it's the same thing here. So, so you know, .NET MAUI with .NET 6 was was quite bumpy. .NET 7, a lot smoother, still a bit bumpy. .NET 8, it's not perfect. There's still, you know, there's still some some small issues, but it's it's now, I'd happily say it's production ready. And in fact, I'm using it in production in multiple apps for myself and for clients. And that's where we are today. So, so we have .NET MAUI. I didn't mean to harp on so much about the history and how we got here, but as I said, it, it's fascinating and I, and I could happily talk about this uh, all day. Well, I've certainly learned something, which was, which was my goal for today. To me, this is a good segue into next week, right? Yeah, I think so. So next week, actually, we mentioned right at the beginning and I said, come back to it and didn't. This, this Saturday just gone, we had a Maui Hack Day. Yes. And that's pretty cool. It's become an annual event. Although before that, we had a Xamarin Hack Day. And what it is, is we used to run it multiple times. So we'd run it in Australia only and we'd run it in person only and we'd run it in Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney. We now mm -hmm. run it simultaneously across four cities, which is Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Newcastle and online. So we get people to come and attend in person and online. And the idea is that we, we, we have a few presentations in the morning, but we try to focus on the hands-on aspect. It's meant to be a hands-on day. It's meant to be a day for people to come along and hack and just build things. So we don't dwell on the on the presentations too much, uh, although they were they were fantastic this year. We had one guy, unfortunately, he was unwell, not able to present. Um, this is a guy, um, his name's Sean Lawrence, and he's based in the UK. He's on the .NET MAUI Community Toolkit team. He does a bunch of really cool stuff around graphics in MAUI. In fact, he's got a game engine that he built in .NET MAUI. Um, he also has a book called Introducing .NET MAUI, 
which uh, we can add a link in the show notes. Uh, I'm not afraid of it. a bit of competition. In fact, I own a copy of his book. It's on the shelf here, and I'm fairly sure he's got a copy of mine as well. His book is good as well. So he was unfortunately unwell, which was a shame because I was looking forward to that. But we had Sam Basu from Progress. I don't know if you know who he is, but I'm sure you know who Progress are. Telerik UI. He gave us a presentation on a whole bunch of stuff around Maui and what it can do and what the tooling is. We had a presentation from one of our guys at SSW showing how you can do custom color schemes. And we had a couple of talks. They weren't able to make it live, unfortunately, but pre-recorded for us by some members of the .NET Maui team at Microsoft. Amazing. Yeah. So Rachel Kang, who focuses a lot on accessibility, gave us presentation on accessibility and .NET MAUI apps. We had another presentation from Maddie Montequilla, who is the program manager for tooling for MAUI. So she's responsible for developer tools. So she gave us a presentation on all the latest things for building .NET MAUI apps in VS Code. So that was really cool. And then the, the thing that I loved most about it, though, Liam, I have to say, was, was the attendees, right? So we had a bunch of people attending from all over the world. We had a guy in Croatia. We had a guy in the UK. We had a guy in the Ukraine who stayed with us all day until probably about 7 a.m. his time. must have been all night he was hacking. And this is actually someone who's also on the Maui Community Toolkit team. So he showed off some of the stuff that he did, which was, to say mind-blowing is an understatement. It's phenomenal. And the stuff that he does is amazing. But some of my favorite things was, you know, a few of these people that were attending had never done any Maui stuff before. And and they were able to show off their hacks and and show things that they got working in .NET Maui, having never done it. We had one person who, having never done it before, at the end of the day said, oh, so I kind of got this thing working. It's a basic weather app. I followed a tutorial and I was just trying to get this color scheme stuff working that Anton showed earlier. I think the tutorial Mm -hmm. might be out of date or there's something not quite, there's a few things not quite right about it that just didn't seem right, didn't work, but I managed to get it working. She'd never done any Maui stuff. I think she'd never even done any C-sharp before. Turned out she'd been following a WPF tutorial <laughs> and not a Maui tutorial, but still managed to figure it out and make it work. Oh, amazing. We had another person, one of our team at SSW, she's obviously a, an SSW developer and a .NET dev, but had never done any Maui before. And she just decided to build a Wear OS app. So she just built an app for a, an Android smartwatch that was just a countdown timer. Again, like having never done it before. Fantastic stuff. And it was a really, really great day and really great seeing everything people were doing. We had another guy at SSW building uh, another app. It was like a, a dog adoption app, like a dog adoption ba- database. And he'd never done it before and you know, managed to get that working. So yeah, th- that was my favorite thing about the day was, was seeing the things people built. Out of all of that, what just blew my mind was um, you just dropped it in there, the Wear OS app. Yeah. If we go back through everything you've spoken about, like .NET MAUI, all the focus was on your iPhones and your Android phones and cross-platform. Like back then, wearables were not a thing. And they've just sort of snuck in over the last couple of years. Like throughout this whole conversation, I was not even thinking about watches but now you've just thrown, someone's just put together a Wear OS app. Yeah, I forgot to mention. So I said Windows, Mac OS, Android, and iOS. Also Wear OS and Watch OS and TV OS and Tizen. So you can run .NET MAUI apps on your wrist or on your TV. Yeah. Like, and uh, I can only assume any other technology that comes down the track. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, every, everything that we're describing so far is a variation of Mac OS, Windows, iOS, or Android anyway. Mm. So it doesn't support... Linux at the moment and Microsoft have said that they're not going to support Linux not that they're not going to but it's not on their backlog so that can come from community support because of the way that .NET MAUI is architected from a technical perspective it's certainly very possible and feasible and and shouldn't be that hard so the way that MAUI works right is you've got your underlying platforms so you've got you know Android and and iOS and Mac OS and you've got some other things in this layer cake as well like obviously you've got the the CLR and you've, you've got the base class library got the mono 
runtime or you've got the .NET runtime or WinRT or depending on where you're running it. And you've got the platform abstractions themselves, right? But you have this layer at the top, which is the UI layer, and that's called .NET MAUI. Yep. Now, the way that it's coupled to the underlying platform is through something called virtual views. And what that means is that there's actually a two-way interface, right? So there's an interface like pulling one out of the air, like iButton, right? To implement iButton in your code, in your cross-platform layer, you write the button type in .NET MAUI, which implements iButton. So you can create a cross-platform UI that uses this MAUI um, architecture underneath that implements this iButton. But in the other direction, it's implemented on the platform through a handler, something called a handler. So what the handlers yep. do is they take that interface and they, they wire it up to the actual platform. So uh, for example, on iOS, it's using a UI button. So it connects that iButton interface that's defined in that middle .NET MAUI layer to the platform implementation underneath. And what this means is that .NET MAUI allows you to do many things. One of the things is it allows you to completely write your own UI layer across the top using mm -hmm. all that infrastructure underneath to implement it on the platforms. You can do that. And the other thing that it means is that you can write your own handler architecture to then implement that on any underlying platform where .NET can run. Awesome. So it's kind of, now is this glue in the middle and you can write your own UI on top or you can write your own implementation underneath. Look, I can tell you would be able to talk to this topic for another two and a half, three hours. But if we do go down that path, then no one's going to have any need to come to your workshop next week. That's true. That's true. Yeah, you better stop. <laughs> so I'm just... Conscious of the time now, as we're wrapping up, what are you looking forward to next week? You know, it's a big week in the software space in Sydney. What is it you're looking forward to? Well, obviously NDC, as I mentioned, I'm really looking forward to my workshop. I'm, I'm looking forward to spending a couple of days with people that are really passionate about learning about this topic and sitting there and building an app for a couple of days. That's going to be exciting. Mm -hmm. And then we've got three days of really cool talks at NDC. Yep. I'm excited. I put together my agenda. Unfortunately, some of the things that I want to see clash, so I'm going to have to make some hard decisions there. Unfortunately, a talk from a colleague and good friend of mine is on at the same time as my talk, mm. so I'm not going to be able to see that, sadly. There's a lot of talks. Like I'll give you an example, one that just immediately comes to mind. There's one about amateur space exploration through open source projects. That just looks amazing. There's one about building a robot arm using Raspberry Pi, and you know, like there's just some cool stuff going to be at this, this this conference one of the amazing things with ndc is they do release the videos at a later date so you won't miss it you'll still always be able to get that content but i won't be able to heckle the presenters but oh absolutely the atmosphere being there and it's an event that i look forward to every year but unfortunately i don't know if i can make it this year i was really looking forward to it but um as I alluded to earlier, I've just picked up a new consulting gig. So I'm not sure if I'll be able to spare some time next week, but we'll see. I know you're working behind the scenes to see if we can tee up some behind the scenes conversations. Yeah. So we actually have three already lined up. That's something else I'm excited for for next week. Look, I'm going to try to be there. Really looking forward to that part. Maybe if you can't make it in person, we can do something like we do now and you can dial in. We'll see. Absolutely. We'll, we'll figure something out. Yeah. That's another thing I'm excited about is we're talking to some, some cool people next week at NDC. I know we're wrapping up. We're trying to close out for the evening. I will tell a funny story though. Yeah. I went to NDC with you five years ago. Yep. First time I'd ever been. I don't know if you remember. Mm. You recall? I don't mean to offend you, but nothing stands out specifically about that event. I would hope not. And I'll, I'll tell you why, right? So we went to see a talk. You and I went to see a talk on Flutter, which was given by a couple of people. And obviously it was a talk about cross-platform mobile development. So I was 
excited and I, you know, I asked a few questions. Yeah. And the gentleman that was one of the two people that presented it, I bumped into him giving a, a similar talk at a user group a few weeks later. And I went up to speak to him afterwards. Uh, no, before actually, before the talk, uh, you know, I went up to sort of say hello. And he gave me a look and he said, so you, you're going to heckle me again tonight, are you? And I just thought, heckle you? I was, I was just asking questions. Uh... Well, look, you never know. I mean, you might get your own back this year. I might. Actually, he's doing a talk this year as well. Um, so it, it's Nick Randolph, oh, yeah. and I've asked him if we can chat to him as well. So we'll see if he's available. He's just, just kidding around. Like, you know, he's a good bloke. He's going to be there. So I'm, I'm looking forward to his talk as well. And also, with any luck, we'll we'll have a chat with him. Awesome. So you're drinking anything tonight? I am, Liam. I, I haven't got the camera on today, would you believe? But I'm back on the beers. Ah, there we go. What are we drinking? Today, I am drinking my clone wood. Yeah, clone wood. Nice. Do you know why? Because it's fucking million degrees and I wanted a beer. <laughs> <laughs> I know, this heat. I've, I've had to get through a couple of beers to get through this. I went for a run on Saturday. That was about 30 plus degrees when I got back from that one. There's nothing better than that beer when you get home after those runs. Yeah. I mean, I tend to do my runs quite early in the morning, so I'll probably won't oh, be having a beer after. Honestly, I would have done. Oh, I'm I'm the same. I'm out at the crack of dawn, if not before sunrise, but particularly if I'm going out on the trails, I'll wait for the first light so I can actually see what I'm tripping over. But Saturday, my wife was away this weekend. She had a girl's trip away, so I had the kids. And it wasn't until I could get someone to actually look after them that I could get out and about so that run was actually in the heat of the day from 11 o'clock but you know got to train when you train and as i've figured out from training back like i mentioned earlier back in 22 when it was bucketing down my philosophy and mentality that i kept reminding myself was you can't choose a rather on weight race day right so i need to be able to train and be comfortable in all weather conditions because what happens on race day happens and you just got to put up with it. Yeah, well, I did my Ironman in Western Australia on a 35, 40 degree day. And I tell you, I wasn't even thinking about the no, heat. That's it. And look, I mean, you start in the morning when it's cold, you finish in the afternoon or the evening when it's a bit cold again, and you forget what happened during the rest of the day. Yeah. To give you an idea of how hot it is right now, if anyone's listening and they're not in Australia, yesterday I took my daughter to the playground. Now she's three, Riley's three, right? Now, you know what a three-year-old's like at a playground? They don't ever want to leave no matter what we were at the playground for about five minutes and she asked me to go home because it was too hot my three-year-old said let's go home it's too hot oh, look it's quarter past nine right now recording quarter past nine and i'm sweating in the office here with my fan on yeah same yeah <laughs> so i think that's a good move. Crack a beer, mate. i think on that note i think that's a good point to end you haven't told me what you're drinking what yet. am i drinking um little creatures oh very nice i do love a little the little creatures pale ale. Once this temperature really starts to settle down is when I'm really planning on my next brew. It's hard for me to control the temperature of my um, of my ferments. So I need to wait for a stable temperature so I can ensure the garage is nice and stable. I know what you mean. I actually ruined a fridge. I bought a, a temperature regulator with a little temperature probe that I would strap to the side of the fermenter and stuck that in a fridge and it just broke the fridge. Yeah. If it worked for a few brews, but you can't turn fridges on because what it does is just you plug the fridge into it and then you plug that into the wall. Yeah. And it just shuts off the power and you just can't turn a fridge on and off like that. No, absolutely not. There are fermentation fridges and whatnot that you can set up but i don't have the space i don't have i don't want to spend that extra money for it so until then i'll just wait for the the temperature to stabilize and start to get a couple of brews on thanks again matt for the history of maui there you know you've certainly taught me something and i've learned a lot which was the task i set from the beginning 
And that's it for this week's episode of the Beer Driven Devs. I'm Liam Elliott. I'm Matt Goldman. Cheers. Cheers. The Beer Driven Devs podcast is recorded and produced on Dorawal and Darkinjung land. 